do you want them to know exactly how much Bitcoin you own, your home address, your name? Do you want them to know every single transaction you've made, every single transaction you receive? No, you don't want them to know that. So I think this is a, a major argument for why any government or organization or company that tries to restrict coin join usage of customers and Bitcoiners is directly going against those users' best interests and they're putting them at risk. You're, you're, you're putting those users at risk because you're exposing them to this potential financial data leak in the future yeah. with the digitization of, of, of all sorts of personal data. Once these databases get created, they never get disbanded, they keep growing, and eventually they leak. They yep. almost always leak. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. What's up, everybody? Welcome into the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. In this episode, Josh and myself, Dan, are joined by the prolific Bitcoin pleb, Matt O'Dell. Matt is a flat-out mover and shaker in Bitcoin. He is a co-host with Marty Bent on Tales from the Crypt. Uh, they do the Rabbit Hole Recap episode out weekly. He's the host of Citadel Dispatch, which is a fantastic live interactive show about Bitcoin, distributed systems, privacy, open source software. That's out every Tuesday. He's a sought-after guest on every Bitcoin podcast on planet Earth. He's involved in Bitcoin Magazine. The list could go on. This conversation was a blast. We covered a plethora of topics. We dive into some beefy tech regarding Bitcoin security, storage, and privacy. And we also cover some broader topics like Matt's journey into Bitcoin, government regulations, shitcoins, NFTs, etc. This podcast has something for every listener. If a certain segment does get over your head, no sweat, hang tight and write it out as we work back into more relatable topics throughout the entire convo. You can follow Matt on Twitter at Odell. That's at O-D-E-L-L. -L. You can follow us on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. Down in the show notes, you will find links to interact with all of Matt's wonderful content. Now do us a favor, sit back, relax, and enjoy learning from one of the brightest and best in all of Bitcoin. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. So Josh and I are uh, revved up today to talk some Bitcoin, talk some shit with an alpha pleb a freak, if you will. Matthew O'Dell, thanks for coming on the Blue Collar Bitcoin podcast. Dude, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here, guys. Uh, alpha pleb is uh, a new term. I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> are, we, uh, are we allowed to use the word freak or is that trademark Tales from the Crypt type shit? I, th you know, I never talked to Marty about it specifically. You know, I came in uh, to Tales from the Crypt uh, about 20 episodes in um, and he was already calling the audience freaks. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm pretty sure he stole it from Joe Rogan. I think Joe Rogan oh. early in Joe Rogan's career was calling them freaks. I think it's a, it's, it's a relatively common, uh, Oh, well, you know, it's the old saying, good artists copy, great artists steal, right? Yeah, exactly. As far as I'm concerned, everyone should use it. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. 
How's your morning been? What have you What have you been up to? Uh, dude, it's it's it's. Uh, I'm working like uh, I have like five different jobs that I'm working um, right now, and one of them is fiat, and then the rest are Bitcoin related. Um, and it's just like it's just a constant hustle. Uh, it's it's nonstop. Yeah, it's not. I was really looking forward to this conversation. So, I mean, I just I got my shit done in the morning. I like closed my eyes for 15 minutes and then I jumped on with you guys. I'm having a hard time believing that Matt O'Dell is working for cucks. Um, yeah, come on. It <laughs> doesn't sound like characteristic I thought you'd have. Well, unfortunately, amid those five revenue streams, <laughs> the, the the fiat job is the highest one so yeah, i have God. not yeah gotcha. i have not had the balls to uh to cut that yet um but it all goes into bitcoin so to stack sats you gotta hustle and you gotta you gotta end up with some cuck bucks that get transferred it's pretty simple unfortunately yeah i mean it's a common i i it's a common issue that i see happen to people where they get obsessed with bitcoin as the three of us have um and so they rush and they hate their job which is just, I think, standard across humanity. Most people hate their job. And uh, they just rush into trying to join a Bitcoin company. Um, and usually the pay is a lot worse and the mm -hmm. bear market hits. And all of a sudden you have all your assets in Bitcoin and your job is a Bitcoin company. And then they either cut yeah. your pay or they get rid of you. So I've been kind of conservative with it. And I've just gone with like a layered approach. Just keep adding. And rather than subtracting anything, but I, I hope at, by the end of this cycle, I expect to just be full time Bitcoin and just nothing else. I think there's some practical wisdom there. Yeah, we we've said yeah, that. Sure, we think Bitcoin teaches a lot of just basic sound financial behavior. Like you need to save money, you need an income stream, and for a lot of people, these are foreign ideas. They're just used to buying stupid shit on credit cards their whole life, so the idea of freeing up their cash flow is foreign. Yeah, we go like, I, I, I think Bitcoiners tend to go into the weeds, right? But like most people just need to hear like, bring in more income than you spend. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a very yeah, basic that's... thing, but most people don't fucking practice that. So, Hence the over leveraged world we're living in. Matt, we wanted to talk to you about how we, uh, how we threw this fishing line onto Twitter and, and hooked a big bass here, having you on the show. We, uh, so I misattributed the, uh, the Bitcoiner.guide from Bitcoin QA to you. And I'm not sure if that was some kind of Freudian slip. I didn't do it purposely. I think I listened to you on TFTC, heard about that. I was down the rabbit hole reading that. And then we wanted to get you on the show. So I was like, oh shit, he wrote that. I'm going to send this tweet at him, see if, he can get, see if we can get any capture. And it worked way better than I expected yeah. because you didn't even write it. <laughs> yeah, if you forced my hand. I had to respond because you misattributed it. Yeah, and you know what? That's an avenue I'm going to approach for more guests in the future. I, I love. I, I would love if you just make it a trend. You just constantly misattribute people yeah. just to just to We're get going them to respond. Be like, this is this is this move of these BCB guys. They just misattribute some article you never wrote. They hook you. They get you on, and then they fillet you. Well, it only it only works if if you have someone if you're targeting someone with some decent morals because unfortunately on Bitcoin Twitter there's a lot of people that like to take credit for other people's work. But uh, Bitcoin Q and A has become a good friend of mine. I've never met him in person. I don't know his you know legal name or anything. I just know him by Nim. Uh, but yeah. I talk to him all the time, and uh, it makes a lot of sense that you misattributed it because I'm probably the most prolific shill of his work. Um, I'm just constantly telling people to go there. And, and the real reason is because when I first entered Bitcoin, I made a ton of guides 
Um, and the problem with Bitcoin, I, I guess it's a feature, not a bug, is that things move so quickly that you get caught in this hole of you have to constantly update the guides. Otherwise, people are going to your guides from two years ago mm, and there's right. a bunch of mistakes in there. Yeah, or there's outdated. a bunch of things. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when I saw him doing it and I saw 6102 Bitcoin doing it and I saw Diverter doing it, I just, and keep it simple Bitcoin doing it, I decided my new tactic was I was just going to shill good guides by other people rather than make them myself. So I'm very grateful for all the work they, they do. Yeah, we are too. That, that is an incredible guide. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. Matt, could you give us a little backdrop on like your journey into Bitcoin? Because this is something I don't know. I don't think Dan had... Dan, do you have any yeah, I don't, background I, on that? I I've never I, heard your, your story. Take us from the top Just, here, Matt. Well, first of all, before we start, I know I said it to you guys before uh, we started recording, but I, I just wanted to say thank you guys for being firefighters. I really do respect the profession, and I'm, I'm glad that, that we have Bitcoiners in the field uh, out there helping people. Thanks, and we really appreciate that. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, how did I get into Bitcoin? Uh, my early childhood... I guess I'm similar age. Is we, there a trauma? You guys doxed your age earlier uh, before we started recording. Um, so I'm not going to dox my age, but we're in a similar age bracket. Um, and my development years uh, were hit twofold. They were hit with the 2008 financial collapse, um, which was in my formative years. Uh, I guess when I was really young. Yeah, yeah. So, so I had the 2008 financial collapse and then... And I guess it was like 2012 or 2013, we had the Snowden leaks. Um, so you had like the economics with the 2008 stuff and just like losing faith in basically our, our economic policy and, and how all that is run. And like this idea that experts don't really know what the fuck they're talking about, even though they go on TV and pretend they know what they're talking about all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Snowden leaks on the privacy side. Um, and I guess in between there, there was also. I may have done a little bit of uh, sports, online sports gambling, um, and they had that Black Friday that happened or Black Tuesday. I forget what they called it, but it was when like Visa and MasterCard cut off all the sports gambling websites. Uh, basically, they didn't, make, they didn't make online gambling illegal. They just pressured the payment provider so you couldn't deposit or withdraw. Yeah. Um, so those three things combined, I had a friend... Tell me about Bitcoin. Um, I looked at it. I was like, well, that, you know, there's obviously a use case for that. I, in my simple mind at the time, I was, I was like, even if it's just used for online sports gambling, uh, there's a use case for that, just like online cash. Um, but I was like, there's no way it's going to work. I, I, was, I was like, every time there is some kind of empowering technology, whether that's like a, a Napster, um, or like in encryption or something like that, you have governments come in and they just try and squash it as much as possible. So I was like, it's, it can't work. Um, I'm going to ignore this thing. I don't want to get my hope up. I'm just going to focus on my life. Then I had a second friend tell me about it. This guy was completely different. So the first guy who told me about it had drug issues. Uh, and he, he found out about it from the Silk Road. So like he had a college buddy who was like buying stuff on the Silk Road. Um, and then the second guy who told me about it about six months after that was this straight edge geek who just like loved the numbers <laughs> aspect of it. You know, he just like loved the idea of 
of money that was code. So you got both ends of the spectrum here. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, how are these two guys both shilling me the same thing? Like, how the hell is that happening? So then I spent about six or seven months um, basically just trying to like logically break the system. Like, where is it vulnerable? Like, how how will this thing fail? How will, you know, government shut it down? How will big tech, you know, neuter it? Um, and then I came to the conclusion they probably couldn't. And then the rest is history. I've just been uh, obsessed with it ever since. Turned into a straight plebe right away, huh? <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Hey, did you hear that OnlyFans just got banned by VSN MasterCard? And yep. uh, I would be curious how that's all going to play out. And if there's going to be a whole other generation of guys trying to look at, you know, their OnlyFans chick and they're going to have to use some kind of crypto now because VSN MasterCard just locked them out. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, it was inevitable. We've seen it happen in the past uh, with with sexually explicit content. Uh, Backpage was a big example. They switched to Bitcoin. I mean, Backpage is obviously uh, was even more in a legal gray area than OnlyFans because there was a lot of uh, sex workers that were, you know, literally selling sex on Backpage, um, while OnlyFans is, is more pornographic. Um, but, but the precedent ha- was already there and it's also similar to the precedent that was set with, with the online gambling sites, uh, where, and, and, the uh, what is it called? Operation choke point where they hit, um, weed, uh, dispensaries, legal weed dispensaries, uh, th- that get pressured, uh, via the financial system through the traditional financial networks. You cut them off from banks, you cut them off from payment processors. And as a result, you get them to bend to your will. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, I think it was kind of inevitable that only Vance was going to get pressured. Um, and I do agree it's a major opportunity uh, for censorship-resistant money for Bitcoin. Um, and for better or worse, it's a very motivated group of people, young people, both on the, the creator side, both on you know the actual producer of the content side. They tend to be young and resourceful and hustlers. Um, and both on, and on the simp side, on the male side, you know, they'll do anything possible <laughs> yeah. to, yeah, uh, possible to get that content. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I, I, I think it could switch really quickly. Um, we saw OnlyFans blew up really quickly as it was. So I think it could switch really quickly and we already have the tools, you know, people say like someone has to build an OnlyFans for Bitcoin. I've been saying for a while, you know, we love Sphinx chat, um, which is a, a messaging chat app uh, that runs on the Lightning Network and allows you to send Lightning payments and you could put pictures and videos that have paywalls built into them in your group chat. Yeah. And the the main way we've been using it is we use it to monetize our podcasts. So like Citadel Dispatch, which I, I launched in December, has no ads or sponsors. It's 100% audience funded. And I get I, the audience members are, are literally streaming sats as they listen by just going into a podcasting 2.0 app, searching Citadel Dispatch and, and putting in sats. So fucking But I've cool. been saying for a while that yeah. that is cool, especially as a podcast creator and as Bitcoiners. But the killer app is an OnlyFans-esque tribes on Sphinx Chat. And they already exist. There's, there's women on there that they have a group. And the way Sphinx Chat groups work is there's a price that they set in sats on, on joining the group. So they, they have a, a wall there first to come in. And then once you come in, when they put videos or pictures, they put them behind sats paywalls. 
and you have to you have to pay per per view for for each of those things and it goes straight from one wallet to the other wallet without a, a middleman pornography moving humanity forward one step at a time yeah. let's go all right we're going away from audio only we're going to video josh take your shirt off and we'll get on sphinx i got it i didn't shave today <laughs> i got a genuine curiosity i actually hearing you talk there maybe think of this, this tweet i sent the other day so like any good pleb josh and i are just trying to stack sats any way humanly possible and uh as i'm sure you are probably in a similar boat we're kind of at the red line you know all the time in terms of how much we can put away right. so uh he's got the fold card i have i have the new BlockFi card and we can get into lending and those platforms that's a whole separate discussion i am curious to to unpack that because we're actually both completely, we, we both did some custodial lending. We're both completely off 100% cold stored now. That's a separate subject. What I want to get into is I said, I took a picture of my BlockFi card and I said, I got to be honest, seeing this Bitcoin logo atop of Visa One is ironic. It's akin to Blockbuster and Netflix partnership in 2007. What do you, what, what do you think is actually being tossed around in these boardrooms at Visa and MasterCard? You know, I don't know if it's that big of a threat to their business model. They, you know, you could already spend with cash today um, or even with a debit card today, but most people choose credit card, right? And, and they choose credit card uh, for a convenience factor. I mean, compared to a debit card, you have to load a debit card. With a credit card, you don't have to load it. Um, with cash, you know, people think it's less convenient to use cash. I mean, I personally love cash, but... Uh, you know, you have change or whatnot, and you can't just like throw your card on the table. Obviously, you can't use cash on, on the internet um, unless you like mail it. Some services allow you to mail cash still. Um, but the main reason is because people love, people love the cheap credit. They love the, the, the debt. They love getting into debt. They, they like spending now, paying later. Um, and the the psycho not psychosomatic the the subconscious loves the points they've like yeah. tricked people into the points people love the points even though you're paying more because you're using a credit card and all their fees are baked into it people get obsessed with the points and i see that with friends they're like oh matt let me put this on my card you pay me cash i want the points i want to harvest the points um so i i think even in a bitcoin standard world we'll have you know we'll have credit cards that are just you know, you they're denominated in Bitcoin, and you pay them off in Bitcoin. And uh, but they give you credit, and then they charge you some high in, interest rate alongside of it. And just like we see in analog today, in the in the real world today, you'll be able to pay with Bitcoin directly, which is akin to a cash transaction, um, or you'll use your credit card that'll be denominated in Bitcoin. Um, so I think they'll have plenty of the pie to still um, eat out of. I just personally, I would never. I think I Bitcoin's going to obsolete them for me and my family and my close friends. I would never advise them to have a credit card in that situation in a post Bitcoin world. Yeah, um, but there'll be plenty of people that choose to to do it. Here's what I think is interesting. So before I got into the, I got out of college. I did something else for five years. I was a manager at a business. We, we grossed about two point four million a year. It's a small business, and I think our credit card bill at the end of the year was something like, I think the, the year I left it, we, we spent $48,000 on credit card processing fees. 
So where I see, I agree, people are going to want credit, right? But there's just something about, there's this irony there of the more people that go down the rabbit hole and experience this network and use this protocol, like even from a merchant perspective, you start, you start considering the potential use case for the Lightning Network of taking on these fees and not having to pay any intermediary. That, that's more the area, and I'm not saying it's, gonna, it's imminent, but it just makes me think more from the merchant side of it. Are they really going to be willing to pay these intermediaries the fees that they're paying them today when a technology yeah. exists that, that pushes that price down to zero? I mean, I, I, I think they'll get squeezed on the fees, right? Like the fees will become more competitive. Yeah. Um, I just don't, I don't think it obsoletes them. I, I think they're, they're just, they're kind of, right now we, we happen to be in the golden age of credit cards, you know, specifically on the internet. So much shopping has gone online even before all the pandemic shit happened uh, and the lockdown shit happened. There was a ton, most, you know, so much was going online and now even more is online. And right now for most people, they don't even know Bitcoin is an option. So, so they're going to credit cards. So it just happens to be kind of like the golden age of credit cards. So I, I, I think they've peaked, yeah. right? And I think their fees get squeezed and they can't be as malicious about their fee structures. But I don't think it just obsoletes them. I think they'll be, you know, Bitcoin backed cards, basically. And in the meantime, like you said, I mean, in both your cases, you're using cards that give you sats back. Um, and that on, in the short term, that could be a major revenue generator for them to get new people in to their credit card schemes because it's such such a better rewards uh, point um, than a typical rewards point. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, we want to really dig into Bitcoin security with you because I, I think you're probably in the forefront, of, at least in my mind, of somebody who, who's really got this nailed. Um, so recently, I know you guys talked about this on TFTC, the, uh, that T-Mobile hack. It was at 100 million people lost yeah. their social security numbers, their credit card numbers, or potentially credit card numbers, you know, where they live. All this personal information was leaked online. It's going to make its way into the hands of people who are going to use it for nefarious purposes at some point. I mean, this is the reason that we're, we, everyone should take their security extremely seriously online and especially with, you know, digital currency like Bitcoin. Because if you, if you use this stuff improperly, you have a hot wallet, somebody can hack you, someone can take your funds. So I want to just kind of outline like my idea for how this kind of goes as someone is introduced to Bitcoin and then as they kind of gain some, some, uh, some experience and how they kind of allocate their funds. So I think this is how I, this is just my little scale here. So Maybe. zero is you just decided you're going to buy some Bitcoin. You're probably a plebe who's going to go straight to Coinbase and you're going to buy on Coinbase and you're going to leave it on the exchange. That's step zero. Then after you hear, you know, a couple of podcasts, you start understanding that you can actually custody the stuff yourself. You're going to go get yourself a basic hardware wallet, like a Trezor or a Ledger, something fairly user-friendly. You're going to start learning how to control your keys and how to care for your seed keys because they're, they're vitally important. As we've, you know, we've told people this on this podcast over and over. Those are literally your Bitcoin. Someone else gets a hold of those, your money's gone. Uh, so that would be a step one. And then a step two would be maybe running your own node with uh, an instance of Spectre Wallet, which is my favorite personally, and then getting yourself an array of three or maybe even five hardware wallets and setting up your own multi-sig. And I mean, that's a big step for a lot of people because it introduces a whole lot of moving parts and it can be intimidating. And then uh, so the, the third step even after that is to start thinking about coin joining to make yourself completely private 
and uh, coin joining some of your coins into segregated wallets. So I just want to hear what your thoughts are on that kind of step process into this ecosystem. First of all, I would say that um, the number one thing that that if 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 you're talking to a friend or family member who's interested in Bitcoin, um, is if they're if they're going to go for one of these regulated brokers like a Coinbase or a Cash App or a River or a Swan. Um, they're going to be required to do a bunch of KYC information, like the information that got leaked from T-Mobile. Exactly. Um, and that's going to be social security number, mailing address, full name, sometimes selfie, stuff like that. Um, so that if they choose to go that route, their decision should, they should think about that decision. It shouldn't be a rushed decision. And really, you as, as the person bringing them into the space should be thinking about that decision and making sure that that the one they choose is one that you actually trust and is reputable. And because even if you trust them and they're reputable, they still might get hacked or fuck you over. But the goal should be, I see so many new people come into the space, they sign up to Coinbase, they do KYC. Then they're like, I don't really love Coinbase. They sign up to Binance, they do KYC. They sign up to River, they do KYC. And the next thing you know, their KYC information is in six different places. Yeah. Right. So if you're if you're going to go through a regulated on ramp that's going to require this personal information, you should really keep it to one. That's you should a pick great one point. and stay with it. Um, yeah. So it's up to us as as people onboard when you're onboarding friends and family. It's it's up to you to basically hold their hand at that period. Don't just send them, especially not to like a Robinhood where they can't withdraw. Period. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. We've been very clear and told everyone not to buy at Robinhood. We've thrown out the Robinhood warning as hard as we possibly can. But the problem is, yeah. you you often catch these people after they've already fucked up. You know. Right. Well, if that, if that's already the case, then so be it. Right. But let's well let's call that like. Step zero point five, right? Like it's before the, the 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 person you're onboarding has even been onboarded. That's a task for you as the onboarder or whatever, and and you should basically make that clear to the person. Okay, so then one is obviously okay. So they ninety nine percent of people coming through a regulated broker. A lot of them are coming through Coinbase. Um, they buy Bitcoin and then they leave it on the exchange. That I would agree. That's number one. Um, an alternative number one is if you have some Bitcoin and you need some cash, you can sell it to them directly. So their first Bitcoin is not even a regulated exchange. They just, they get, they get to feel the, the, the real thing of Bitcoin. Um, so I would say that's like one asterisk. Um, then number two, I wouldn't say is a hardware wallet. I, you skipped a mobile wallet. I think I think for most people, first of all, they don't really have a real computer. They, they only have a phone or their real computer is old or provided by work or something like that. Um, so they already have a phone. It's probably one of the newest phones because everyone overspends for their phones anyway. So they got this really great expensive computer in their pocket. Um, so you set them up with a, with a good mobile wallet. Um, I, as a beginner wallet, really like Moon, M-U-U-N, because it interacts with both Lightning and on-chain. Um, and they basically can just scan any Bitcoin QR code, whether that's a lightning or a Bitcoin, uh, lightning or on chain QR code and they can pay it. Um, so it's a really easy beginner wallet. Um, and then I have a, I have a full list of wallets I like on sealedispatch.com slash help, but you onboard them with, uh, you onboard them with a mobile wallet. Maybe they send some transactions using it. Maybe they send it back and forth with you or a friend or they they play some lightning based game on online 
um, where they where they can actually test it out and see how quick it is and how it works and get comfortable with it. They back up the mobile wallet. And I think actually there's like a middle ground here where they can get comfortable with the mobile wallet up to a certain amount of money that most people probably would, would think it would be too much for a mobile wallet. But I'd prefer like if I had a friend who had $10,000 worth of Bitcoin, I would rather them hold it on a backed up moon wallet or a blue wallet or a samurai wallet on their mobile phone with the keys held themselves um, than hold it on Coinbase. Because literally, if it's on Coinbase at any moment, you can just completely lose access to it. Um, while with the major mobile wallets, there's theoretical concerns because they're hot wallets. But there's there's of any of the 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 big ones like there's a lot of scammy wallets like if you just search Bitcoin wallet in like the Android store or the Apple store there's a lot of scammy ones but of the reputable ones there's there hasn't been any widespread attacks like big attacks where people lose their money um, so you you put them in a self custody local storage solid big mobile Bitcoin wallet they get comfortable with it and then from there we move to hardware wallets and I would say just skip the Trezor and the Ledger at that point and just go straight to cold card. I think, I think once you get to that point, um, you're going to, let's be honest, Trezor is easier to use. Uh, it's significantly easier to use than cold card, but it's still a big step up. You know, it's still, it's still pretty confusing. So why waste the, the bandwidth and the brain power to get comfortable with the Trezor when you can just put that brain power into getting comfortable with the cold yeah, card just go and you straight can do to the that. final destination. Yeah. Yeah, and you can do you can do that like you said. First, you can you can start it off without using your own note if you want and it's super easy to switch to using your your own note. I do agree with you that I really like Spectre cuz it has core it has Bitcoin core built in. You just install it, you just click a couple buttons. Um but uh I like Sparrow Wallet too for that same purpose. It has similar functionality. Um and what's really nice about cold card is you have they have this feature called seed XOR, seed X O R, and basically what that does is instead of having one seed that's your backup, it gives you two seeds, and you need both those seeds. So your seed, your seed to the audience that might be confused is your seed is like those secret backup words that you have for a wallet. Usually, a wallet gives you twelve or twenty-four words. The cold card gives you two sets of twenty-four words. And you need both of them. So it's almost like a, like a poor man's multi-sig. Uh, but you don't have to conceptualize higher things with multi you know, with multi-sig, there's a lot of different things that are going on in your head if you're running it yourself. Right. Uh, with seed XOR, you just you have these two sets. Ideally, you put them into steel plates um, and you put them, you put them in different areas, different places, ideally not in the same location. Um, and then uh, an attacker needs to find both of those and you need to lose both of those or and your cold card for you to lose your funds. And what I usually recommend to people is go ahead, you saved money by not buying the treasure, buy two cold cards and then you have a, and then, so then you, so you make your backup, you make your seed XOR backup, you have two sets of seeds, but you're like, I don't know if these actually work. Then you take your second cold card and you upload them onto your second cold card. You do a restore process onto that second cold card and you see you can still spend your funds. You know you did everything right. Then you know your backup is, is good and you could put that second cold card in a secure location and that can also be a backup. So then all of a sudden you have your, your main cold card holding your funds 
uh, with a strong pin on it. Then you have the, your two seed phrases that you need both to recover, or you have the the second cold card that is fully initialized. Um, and then when all of that is done, you know you can consider you can consider self sovereign multi sig. Um, I would say that is probably that's like the path I've been going with recently. And this is what we talked about earlier about guides, right? Um, this is the path I've I've been going with recently for like the last four months. If you asked me eight months ago, it might have been a different path. If you ask me another six months, it might be a different path. There's an alternate path that could kind of work is if you go to a Casa or an Unchained, um, which are collaborative custody multisig where they hold the key and hold your hand. Yeah. They both offer KYC onboarding too. So actually you can go to Casa skip signing up for Coinbase or whatever, and, and you can just do it all. start with multisig as a noob out of your mobile wallet. So you start with the mobile wallet and then you go straight into that multisig. Um, that's way easier than self-sovereign multisig because they will literally hold your hand. They'll send you the hardware wallets. They'll tell you exactly what to do. They'll tell you to check them to make sure they work. Um, the negative is you will never you're going to have to migrate away from that setup if you ever want privacy in your transactions because they know every single transaction you make. Right. Because yeah. they have to have the XPUBs too. Right. Yeah. There yeah, is something correct. to be said for going through the learning process yourself, but sometimes you got to meet people where they're at and they're not motivated or excited yeah. about digging into that. I love uh, just the the clear cut, hey, here's a, that's an incredibly ironclad option you just outlined there. Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple of cold cards myself. They are, I love it. I just don't recommend it to people that aren't really deep into this because it's, it's kind of intimidating for people, you know? Yeah. But I think the treasure is intimidating too, you know? Yeah. It's not like, it's still got some techie stuff like Shamir and all this other stuff. So yeah, I, I totally see what you're saying. And like your passphrase and like, yeah. it's got the little touch screen because like, I've used all of them. I just, for a while, I was doing exactly what you did. I was like, I would onboard people onto like a treasure T, uh, and I was like, it's easier for them to use it. But I just, at this point, and then, then you got to, um, then you got to help them get onto the cold card in the future too. Yeah, I just, I just anyway, like right? skip this step. Yeah. I hear um, you. I hear you. But, but yeah, I, I think the cold card seems more, I mean, I, how about you? So do you feel comfortable with the cold card yet? I do. Yeah. Yeah. It seems more intimidating in your mind before you start really using it, right? Once you start using it, I feel like it's more straightforward. If you have the chance to be there with the person yeah, and, and work with them hand by hand, it seems way less intimidating, I feel like, than otherwise. It kind of depends on how you... If you plug it into the computer and you go directly, which obviously kind of defeats the purpose, it's, it's just like a, uh, any other USB hardware. But when you want to go air gapped, it becomes, you know, more steps involved. And, and it's, it's, that's the part I think where people get a little confused and get intimidated by it. That's fair. You can experiment then, with testnet though, right? You can. You yeah. can. I don't believe in testnet though. I mean, I, don't, I mean, I think devs should use testnet, but I don't, I, I don't like using testnet to, to teach people. I'd rather teach them with $10 worth of Bitcoin. Yeah. Oh, you, yeah. You stole the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. It's like, that's one thing we say to people is. You don't have to go, if you're uncomfortable with a step or a move, right? Just start small. Right. Move a small amount of Bitcoin to a cold card or even step one to the, the hot wallet, the, the hot moon wallet or whatever. Take the first step with a small amount. Yeah. And I want them to, they should send, receive, 
They should they should wipe the wallet. They should restore it to make sure they get the backup price. You got to get comfortable with it. Like there's so many cases where people, you know, decide that they're going to hodl and they hodl their funds for three years and then they go to try and recover it or spend it and they're just completely uncomfortable with Bitcoin. And at that point, the value is worth 20x what they put into it originally. So they're even more nervous. They're more puckered. And yeah. that's the hole you don't want to get into. You want to constantly, you want to practice and get used to it. Um, Josh, I mean, to what you said about cold card using an air gap is more confusing. Yeah, sure. By all means, make, let's make, uh, you know, step two or whatever steps we're on there. Step two is using cold card in USB mode. I don't, I wouldn't say it defeats the purpose. Um, I think I think it's nice that cold card has the feature that you can use it without plugging it in. Um, but it's completely reasonable to use it plugged in, just like you would use your treasure plugged in by default. You have no choice there. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, you're right though. Cold card is an end game solution that people can grow into. Like it it's got exactly. you can you can that can be your final destination and you can have time to move that direction. So the thing that finally sold me on cold card is it's got a little sign that says shoot this in case of emergency to, to brick it. I mean, that badass. Come on. Trezor doesn't have anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I just think, uh, you know, MVK is not perfect. I've given him shit about his recent, you know, op- his, his recent software license change. Um, but uh, he saw a need as a Bitcoiner and he's building a product that he would use. Right. And, uh, and I really relate to that. And I, I'm very grateful that that product exists and that I'm able to use it. So, um, yeah, I, whole, I wholeheartedly recommend cold card. And then besides that, I mean, Trezor works. Uh, you'd use it with a, with a strong passphrase. Um, and then if, if your friend, uh, you know, the main negative of a cold card or positive, depending on how you look at it, is it doesn't support shit coins. Yeah. Are there any wallets you absolutely would not use? You wouldn't tell people do not use? Yeah, there's a ton of them, but I you No, no, I mean hardware wallets, not just the software. Oh, ones. hardware wallets. Um I wouldn't use Ledger unless you were going to do shitcoins. Um but I do have friends that insist on doing shitcoins and I tell them get a Ledger because I it's better than them keeping it on Coinbase or a lot of the mobile wallets for shitcoins are really sh- bad. Um, Ledger's very focused on being the best shitcoin wallet. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think they excel on it, excel <laughs> at it. Um, I would, I like, you should just really stay like, especially newcomers, they should just stay away from anything that's not the top three hardware wallets, cold card, treasure, ledger. Uh, just in general, um, you want something that's got more eyes on it, more users, more reputable. There's a lot of garbage out there. Um, the mobile wallet landscape is even worse. Uh, a, a big a big wallet that a lot of people use in shitcoin land is called Trust Wallet on mobile, and it's you know really really bad. They don't even automatically switch your Bitcoin address. It's a static Bitcoin address when you use it. Um, and the name is ridiculous. Trust Wallet. Trust, I wallet. Just, I don't <laughs> trust like us. Yeah. Um, I like the, I like what you said about uh, that's another that is a feather in the uh, cold card cap. It's that no shitcoins allowed. You you on, onboard yeah. somebody new, and then a year and a half later, they're like, "Why can't I put my Cardano on here?" And you're like, yeah. <laughs> "Trust me, motherfucker. Yeah. Stick with the cold card." So in that case, I would tell them, like, first of all, don't do it. But if you're gonna do it, then you have like a ledger and a cold card, um, and you use it together. I, with with Trezor, you should really use a strong passphrase. Uh, 
so that gets a little bit more. I used to use a passphrase on all these devices, to be honest. Um, but Trezor especially because it doesn't have a secure element. So if someone gets a hold of your Trezor uh, and, and they know what they're doing, they can pull the seed off of the Trezor. Basically, what these hardware wallets do is you can, if you want to conceptualize it, it's basically instead of having your seed on steel where you can just read it or on paper where you can just read the words, um, they, they're basically a lockbox for the seed. And they, they keep your seed safe and they protect it with a pin, right? To open the lockbox, you need to do the pin. And then they have a secondary purpose there where once you unlock it, they allow you to interact with the computer or the phone without actually having the seed leave the device. It, 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 signs the, it signs the transaction on the device and then sends the signed transaction to your computer or your phone. So your seed never leaves the device. So really what these hardware wallets are, they're like lock boxes for your seed. Um, and with, with uh, cold card they have a sec- and ledger, they have a secure element that makes that lock box harder to open. Um, Trezor doesn't because Trezor wants to have, they, it's a different trade-off. They want to have more open. Uh, those, those secure elements are, are like proprietary chips usually. They want to stay open source basically, right? Right. They want to fully, fully everything open. Um, while with cold card, what cold card does is they leverage the secure element, but you're not actually trusting the secure element. So the secure element adds like basically redundancy, but if the secure element is compromised, your seed isn't compromised. Um, so like in the worst case scenario in that situation is you like would end up in the similar, like if, the secure element manufacturer was working with someone who wanted to screw you over, you end up in the same situation you'd be in Trezor anyway. So that's where the passphrase enters. And the passphrase is your 25th word. You have the 24 words that are automatically generated for you or 12 words. The passphrase is the 13th word or the 25th word. It's a user decided extra word. And that means even if an attacker gets your seed, pulls the seed off the Trezor or whatever, or sees it on a piece of paper, they still need that 25th word. And if it's, if it's strong, it's almost impossible for them to brute force it. If, if it's weaker, they could just start going through iterations. Um, but the thing is, every iteration is its own wallet. So it, it could take them a while. You could put funds in. Like if, 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 if uh, I mean, don't use this as one, but let's say your, your passphrase was fruits. F-R-U-I-T-S, right? You could put a little bit of Bitcoin in fruit. And then if they hit fruit first, they think that's your wallet, but it's all in fruits, you know? So there's, you can put decoys and stuff like that. So it, it significantly increases your protection and everyone should use a passphrase. Um, but you have to remember the passphrase. You forget the yeah. passphrase, you lose your funds. Yeah, People fucked. have to remember that we get deep in the weeds here, but 99% of Bitcoin that people lose is because they lose it themselves. Mm-hmm, they yeah. they overcomplicate the setup. They they get too paranoid. They make it way too complex. They forget a passphrase. They try and remember their seed. They forget where they put their seed. They do a firmware update and they haven't backed up anything. Yep. So I in the beginning you got to keep just keep it as simple as possible. Don't overthink it and just work slowly and get comfortable. Yeah, that's a wise word. Like we we want to push people towards self-sovereignty, but we also want to make sure they're not getting out over their skis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 100%. Um switch gears a little bit here. Uh we usually aren't big price talkers here. We're more a fundamentals podcast, but I am curious, Matt, where do you think we're at in this cycle? 
Like, well, how do you size up? Oh, there's because like we, put we, your we, nose to this we, one. We were saying this before we started, and Josh and I throw this around a lot. There's there's upside either way. If we sail from here, that's great. But there is this right. there is this part of you that wants the price to to tank or level off so you can stack more. Right. It's the stack the stacker's dilemma. First of all, before before we jumped on, before we started recording, well, like Bitcoin went up like five percent and Bitcoin Twitter just went straight euphoric. Fifty K's upon us, we're going, we're gonna go. Uh, are we I haven't even looked today. I love Bitcoin Twitter, but it's also a, a bit of an echo chamber for sure. Oh, it's a it's massive like, take, echo take chamber. Take a deep breath, folks. Jeez, forty eight um, six right now. You know, I got pie in my face because I uh was saying 200k by bitcoin 2021 uh which happened in june uh which we did not hit 200k uh almost i think at at the time of the conference we were at like 32k or something <laughs> like that down from 64k um usually i don't make price predictions that was a anomaly i was just having fun with it yeah. and i got a lot of pie in my face you know i i think i don't think the cycle is over um i I, I think we're kind of in a similar situation as 2017 and 2013, where there was like a lull in September and then it rips again. In 2013 specifically, there was an up and down, severe down, and then an, an even bigger rip. Um, it was like two distinct cycles in 2013. But even in 2017, there was a pump and then everything kind of lulled. And then like in October, November, it went up. Um, but you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's that all that speculation is all noise. Uh, you know, I, I think I think Bitcoin will be at significantly higher prices, more purchasing power. I mean, you know, in five years, ten years, uh, than it is today, um, like significantly. And I think like the difference between buying at 30k and buying at 70k is negligible. Yeah, yeah. I think, and and it might sound ridiculous but like i was saying the same thing between 3k and 7k and if you look back now does anyone really give a shit like if if you bought if you bought at 3k or you bought at 7k no one cares but between when we went from seven when we went from like 10k all the way down to three and a half k people were like it's the end of the fucking world like i wish i i wish i sold at 9k i wish i bought at three and a half k they were all freaking out right but it's all just a waste of time because in five years, it's going to look exactly the same. The difference between 30 and 70 is going to look like the difference between three and seven. Yeah. yeah. I remember we talked in like in 2017 after, well, maybe in 2018 after you kind of watched that thing blow up and we were watching it, you know, back down to like, I don't know, eight grand or something. And we were talking about how this 2017 boom is going to look like the 2013 one that does on the chart with 2017 right. in four years, you know, and we're kind of looking at it now. It looks, it looks, it's getting smaller every day going to be a tiny little chode on the chart yeah every day it looks yeah. smaller i mean or we're, we're wrong we're if we're if we're right if we're right that's going to be the case or we're wrong and we're just be miserable failures and we'll just have cake on our face but <laughs> i i don't think there's like a middle ground yeah uh so i just i i'm bitcoin gives me hope i'm optimistic because of bitcoin exists because bitcoiners exist because these softwares and tools exist that we can you know take power back as individuals and uh as a result i'm all in i'm just i just constantly just keep stacking and just trying to get more bitcoin and i don't think 
I don't think you can ever really have enough Bitcoin. So I, I, you just got to keep going. I, I like that statement about there is no middle ground. We did, I don't know, a month or two ago, we did a couple episodes called Bitcoin for Boomers where we brought on a gentleman that we both know and he asked us questions and we did our best to answer. And cool. I forget which one of us said it, but we were we, we tried to explain to him, in our humble opinion, this thing is not going to be trading at twenty to $50,000 in 10 years. It right. obviously we we on the asymmetry scale, it's it's either going way down and we're, we've completely missed the mark here, or exactly as you said, this thing's going to be totally paradigm shifting, and the network's going to grow in a way that's going to make people's head explode. Like it's it's not going to stay where it is now for very long. Yeah, I find that like that's the least likely scenario to me. It's like the least likely scenario is that we're at the same exact price in five yeah. years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Um. So this is this is fairly basic, but you got to remember our audience is we're trying to help average folks, right. right? Peers we work with, people that don't have a lot of exposure to this, and we've we've done another couple episodes on shit coins where we basically just you know just rip these things apart. But when we get guests on, especially someone with your level of knowledge, we do like to go back to the basic question: Can you try to summarize for somebody listening who's bought some Bitcoin and now he's down the, the he's getting sucked into the shitcoin vacuum. Take him back to basics, you know, grab him by the shoulder, shake him here and tell him why he needs to stop shitcoining. You know, so I don't think shitcoins are, uh, and I've been pretty consistent on this. I don't think they're a threat to Bitcoin. I think they're a threat to individuals who choose to speculate on them and, and 99% of them will get wrecked. You know, trading is already difficult. Even if you want to trade Bitcoin, extremely difficult to make money. Um, trading stocks extremely difficult to make money. Uh, trading shit coins is even the most is the most difficult. Uh, it's dominated by people that know exactly what they're doing, um, and they're in the one percent. And ninety nine percent of people will lose more money. If you still think you can beat the market, um, then you know you do it with less amount of money. <laughs> you know, try play around with your your play around money. And you're going to lose it all. And at the end of the day, I think all portfolios that have a little bit of Bitcoin in them will ultimately become 100% Bitcoin because everything else is going to trend to zero in Bitcoin terms. Mm, yeah. Um, so like, unless you keep rebalancing, it's just going to be all Bitcoin at some point. Um, but I, I think it's, it's mostly noise. And, and what happens is you're going to lose a lot of money. You're going to stress yourself out. Um, you're going to waste a lot of time. And time is money. Um, and at the end of the day, you're going to have less Bitcoin because of it. You know, 99% of people, if they just keep stacking and they don't look at the price and they just keep putting money into Bitcoin every time their paycheck comes in, will outperform uh, the overwhelming majority of people that either trade Bitcoin or trade shitcoins. Yeah. How, what's your opinion on um, where a lot of these things are going as far as Bitcoin second layers, lightning, and side chains like uh, Liquid? Do you think a lot of these altcoin uh, propositions are going to be subsumed onto those layers of Bitcoin? Or do you think that some of these might actually survive the long term? You know, I, I think the major altcoin use case is gambling. <laughs> the major Bitcoin use case is gambling. And the tools you use to gamble with Bitcoin are altcoins. Uh, you know, one of the, not the major use case of Bitcoin, but one of the major use cases is gambling on altcoins. It's a use case for Bitcoin is to gamble on altcoins. Um, so I think in this new permissionless financial world that we're moving into, 
there's going to be so many, you know, scams and crazy, crazy mechanisms to gamble your Bitcoin. Uh, whether that's shit coins or whether that's card games or whether that's roulette spins, it doesn't really matter. There's a huge amount of demand that people want to gamble. They're generate gamblers and they're going to fucking do it anyway. Okay. So I think this idea that we're going to try and ape use cases on, on other chains is just like, it's not really necessary. It's not something that Bitcoin needs to do. Um, if those use cases become in very high demand, specific use cases, then I expect more options to do those kind of use cases. And some of them will ideally not have a, you know, a free floating shitcoin attached to it that gives you price risk where you, you're going to lose money on it. Um, but that, has, that just has to happen with demand in the market. And as far as these layer two networks go with Liquid and Lightning, um, and now we have state chains are coming out. There's a bunch of different, and you still have the custodial layers too. Um, I, I think most of them, the main use case they're bringing to the table is that the fees are going to be cheaper than on chain. And so you're never, we're not going to really see any real adoption there until, unless fees go up, which I do expect fees to go up. I got pie in my face for that too, because fees are extremely cheap right now. Um, but I do expect fees to go up in the next five years, you know, and, and people, I think people should expect fees to go up. So when fees go up, these layer two networks become more desirable. I, I you know, most people, um, unless they have novel use cases. So like with lightning, there are certain things that you need lightning to do. Yeah. Um, we were talking about streaming sats, right? You need lightning to stream sats. Um, if you're, if, if you're a simp and you're trying to send money to a, to a, you know, an OnlyFans S type of site, it's probably going to be a lightning transaction yeah. because of UX and because of the fact that you can stream payments. Um, so there'll be some novel things that'll push people onto layer two networks, but ultimately I think it's a, it's a fee thing. Um, and, and that's going to take, that's going to take some time. We, we need fees to go up for it to really be practical. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's it's all it's got to go back to the incentives. Just because it's cool and workable doesn't mean people are going to use it unless they need to or they're pushed that direction. And the other thing is most people aren't spending Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, you spend Bitcoin when you have no other option, basically. And people still have options. In the developed world, most people have options. Um and they don't but except for gamble, you know, gambling on shit coins is one of those things you can't really do. Uh, with US dollars, like you kind of need to come into Bitcoin first, right? So there's, we see the use cases dominating are the ones that you don't really have other options besides Bitcoin to use them. Um, the NFT stuff is like, you know, I, there's something there, like baseball cards were a thing, you know, it makes sense to me. Uh, I think it's super overhyped. I think it's super easy to manipulate. I don't think it's anything that anyone should build something long term on. Um, but there's some use cases there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, a lot of the use cases you see in altcoin land are, uh, glorified casinos that pretend they're decentralized and they're not because VCs want to make money and they don't want to get hit by the regulations. So the VCs control them, but they pretend they're decentralized. And I think these kind of things are going to work themselves out in time. And the, it's a feature, not a bug of Bitcoin that it's super slow moving, hard to change. And the use cases that actually have demand will eventually come over to Bitcoin in one way or the other. Yeah. And, you know, one thing we, we harp on all the time is there's really, 
only one protocol that's truly decentralized. And anti-fragility goes completely out the window without that sort of network. Yeah, I mean, I would go even further that I don't think Bitcoin is decentralized enough. Mm-hmm. I would say Bitcoin is the most, if I was going to, the, the way I would frame it is Bitcoin is the most decentralized. Um, but I, I think we still have a ways to go to improving that, that, that trust model. And, and one of the main things, the two main things are, you know, people using their own nodes and more people doing that and uh, mining distribution, which we're seeing happen right now. We're seeing miners move to smaller, you know, distributed around the world, smaller companies doing it, smaller operations doing it rather than just big conglomerate miners. Hey, Matt, I want to circle back to uh, privacy one more time. You, uh, you're a huge advocate for coin joins. I was wondering if maybe you could just explain to the audience uh, basically what a coin join is, how it works, and just that, if you want to go ahead and do that, and then I just have a couple of questions about them in general. Yeah, 100%. Before I do, uh, I have a question before I forget. When you shill Bitcoin to firemen, do you use do you, do you use the uh, do you explain to them that like they can just put their seed in steel and like if a house burns down, like that's the only money that's left over? Like I feel like that's the easiest shill for a fireman possible. Yeah, we've made sure we've made that known for sure. Yeah, yeah I've heard Josh, I've heard Josh use that one. Stamp out your seeds. Yeah. Because there's no other, if you have other money in the house. It's all fucked except for the except for the metal seed. There's always someone after their house burns down who's got a bag of cash somewhere. There, I've seen that a couple of times now. And this, the cash survives or the cash is done? Uh, well, most of the time, the house doesn't burn all the way down, so it uh, usually okay. survives. But They put in a fire safe or something. But we, yeah, it is interesting. We do get a front row seat to people losing their entire property. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's great. Not many people get to see that. And the, yeah, you know it. You know it happens, but to actually see it on people's faces, you you got to be prepared. Your Bitcoin plan needs to withstand your house burning down to its foundation. Hundred percent. There was a guy whose house burned to the ground this summer who had no insurance at all. None. Oof. He had his house paid off and no insurance. It was, it was a rough day. For huge, him. huge house too, like four thousand square foot. Yeah, no insurance. Did you ever shitcoin, Matt? By the way, uh, I don't now. <laughs> but when I first started, like I played around a little bit, and I lost all my money. Yeah, I was wondering more in the past. Like we both dabbled with some shit coins back in seventeen, and then worked our way out, and obviously don't anymore. I was just curious if you had any. Uh, no, I got burned, and I learned my lesson. You know, fucking ev- um, fucking everybody has to go through it. It's crazy. That's what happens. Everyone just got to touch the stove. Like no yeah. one comes in perfect. Everyone thinks you know. I yeah, and I mean with me specifically, like I actually when I came in, I was like, nah, nothing's gonna flip Bitcoin or whatever. And then there was like a friend who just like made a bunch of money on some shit coin and he, he like, he convinced me to put a little bit of money in and I just fucking lost it. Um, yeah. yeah. So back to the coin join question. Yeah. Coin joins. Yeah. Thank you for allowing me to go on my tangent. I was curious about that. Um, I'm always, I, whenever I have like all these different demographics that I talk to, I always try and, you know, uh, model my, my shill towards them. And I, I, I don't think I've ever shilled Bitcoin to a fireman. So. Uh, yeah. We do it all the time. Oh, we, that's, everybody's sick and fucking tired of the two of us. Seriously, <laughs> yeah, for four years, all they hear about from the two of us is people are either, it, and it, it is bifurcating. Like people either are, I mean, obviously we've orange pilled a lot of people, 
But then right. you have the other extreme of people that are literally just right. sick and tired and want us to shut the fuck up. Yeah, because you already got the low-hanging fruit in. So now the only people left are the haters. Correct. Um, and we work with a lot of we work with a lot of boomers too. I mean, the the fire service career firefighting is very generational. So we've got dudes in their you know fifties, four. We got dudes in their sixties, fifties, forties, thirties, twenties. So it's interesting to see generations collide. Can you touch your Bitcoin? Yeah, that's what's cool about firehouses is that you have like the old guys, but then you have tons of young guys that come in, right? Yeah. So you always like have all these young guys around. Um, yeah, the young guys are pretty easy to get to catch. I mean, they get it right away. Um, so CoinJoin, privacy, Bitcoin privacy. Uh, number one rule of Bitcoin privacy is that if you're not using your own node, you're using someone else's node and they're going to be able to see your transactions um, and your balances. A general rule of thumb. Uh, so if you, we talked about, you know, Trezor might be easier than cold card in the beginning. The main reason it's easier is because by default, you connect to Trezor servers, right? right. And Trezor servers are, are looking up your balance for you. They're, they're sending your transactions for you. They're looking up when you receive. Um, so number one step with Bitcoin privacy is using your own node. What do you think of Umbrel uh, while we're on this topic? Do you have anything to say about them? Do you yeah. like them? Do you... Yeah, I, I support the Umbral project. I like all these different node in the boxes because you can run them 24-7 at low power in your closet. Um, yep. Umbral has a more restrictive license than some of the other ones, and that represents some issues uh, in terms of there's like a contentious fork in the future. Which way do they go? Uh, but in general, for a beginner, I think it's a good option. Um, one of the cool things about these node packages, whether you pick an Umbral or Raspberry Blitz, or a Ronin Dojo, or a MyNode, or a Start9, is they all run on Raspberry Pis. So you can actually, if you wipe the SD card and stick it in, you can switch. So you can start with Umbral, and if you want to go to a more advanced setup, like a Raspberry Blitz or a Ronin Dojo, you can just Swap plug it, it in. So Yeah, yeah so cool. I, I don't consider it like a sunk cost, as opposed to when we were talking about the different steps before, we were talking about Trezor, once you buy the treasure, you own that treasure. There's no switching it into a cold card. You know that's a sunk cost that you've already spent. And once people buy something that they, 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 they want to keep using it because they don't want to waste their money. Um, but so I do like Umbral, very user friendly, very pretty interface. Um, I want as many people using their own node as possible. All these node packages default through Tor, which is really nice. Um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. CoinJoin. So when we when we talk about Bitcoin privacy, we, you got to use your own node. The second biggest threat is when you buy on a regulated exchange, like a Coinbase or a Cash App or a River or a Swan, you're giving them your ID information. So they have your ID information. They know who you are. Then when you withdraw or you send Bitcoin, they know where you're sending it. You send it to the string of letters and numbers. Um, it might not say the person's name, but it's a unique string of letters and numbers. We call those a Bitcoin address. And on the ledger, the Bitcoin ledger, the Bitcoin blockchain, this ledger of transactions, like this long Excel sheet of transactions that's shared around the world forever, it's going to show that address there and they know that's your address. So then if you go to make a payment from that, those letters and numbers and you send it somewhere, they're going to see on the chain, they're going to see on the ledger this address sent to this address, right? Yep. Um, if, and then if, you, if it sends from that address to another address, and they see that all, and it's all on the ledger forever for anyone to see. And one of the things about Bitcoin is we expect this thing to be 
you know, relatively unstoppable. We expect this thing to last forever. So even if an attacker doesn't have the capabilities of tracking your transaction today, maybe they don't have access to that KYC info. Maybe they um, just aren't even paying attention. If they get access to that information in the future, they can always look back at the ledger. The ledger is going to be there. It's going to be sitting there for everyone to see. The same risk, the main way is with KYC, but the same risk exists if, Josh, I was to send you Bitcoin. I send you Bitcoin. I'm like, Josh, the firefighter, uh, I know like I know, I'm sending it to you. I have that address I sent it to you on, right? So I could just watch the chain and see you know, maybe you subscribe to OnlyFans or something like that. And I can follow, I can follow that trail. Another thing we see is, um, so that's for payment. It could also go in the reverse. Josh, you pay me. And then I look and see what your past transactions were. Right. Um, and then the fourth one, which a lot of people don't feel yet, but I actually have some business where they, they pay me in Bitcoin. My employer pays me in Bitcoin. I can see into my employer's books and my employer can see where I spend my money and if I'm saving it or not, which I don't want. I don't want my boss to know what my payments are. And actually, I had one job where they sent out Bitcoin bonuses and it was a batch payment. So I saw the whole company's bonuses. I, I'm like, oh, nice. I'm like in the top, I'm <laughs> yeah, in the top yeah, quartile yeah. of bonuses sent out <laughs> because they, they showed them all in a big ass batch payment. So there's all these gotchas that can happen when you're sending Bitcoin. CoinJoin enters the fray because with CoinJoin, it's a collaborative send. So like me, you, and Dan all send a transaction together. And so we have three entry transactions, one for each of us. And then on the outside, there's three outside transactions. And none of us give up custody of our funds. We're holding our funds. We're just doing a collaborative transaction. We're going to send together. And as a result, if someone's watching the chain, um. If all of those those inputs are the same size and all the outputs are the same size, there's a 33% chance that any of them could be any of us, right? So tracking Bitcoin is all a profitability game. When they're looking on the chain and they see a transaction happen, usually a transaction is one Bitcoin address sends to another Bitcoin address with change going to a third Bitcoin address who's held by the sender. Right. And it's a probability game. Did ownership change between sending the two? And and they're constantly, they have software, like the chain surveillance companies have software that's deciding the different probabilities. They're pulling in data sets from the outside and they're deciding um, to, they're, they're adding those data sets up with the blockchain data to try and increase those probabilities. And the whole thing's a probability game. So the idea of CoinJoin is to basically shatter that probability game by making it so there's a million different paths that it could go through. And uh, something, you know, so with the Whirlpool implementation, the way it's set up is you have five entrants and you have five exits and all those, those five on each side are all the same amount. And then after that, some of those exits will then go into another round of five and they'll just keep going into rounds of five. So when you look at the chain, there's all these different ways that the, the Bitcoin could be going in and it, it kind of, it takes that that guessing game of tracking Bitcoin and it makes it you know very very difficult for anyone to actually follow the path, especially someone who is, you know, I, it's very easy to get overwhelmed here. I like I kind of feel you getting a little bit overwhelmed. It's it's and I know the audience is getting a little bit overwhelmed because I talk about this shit a lot. Um, but it's about eliminating low hanging fruit. You know, like yeah. don't mm-hmm. m- most of us are never going to be you know. Uh, 
we're never going to, if we, if we get a targeted attack from like the NSA or the Chinese special services or the Russian special services, they're probably going to be able to figure out your transactions. You know, uh, they're probably going to figure out your location. They're probably all these different privacy steps you try and take in your day-to-day life, whether it's Bitcoin or not, they'll probably be able to destroy your privacy. But when I pay you or like your employer pays you or something, like you should be able to take away the low-hanging fruit. Like they shouldn't know how much money you have and where you spend it. And and it's relatively accessible to take away that low-hanging fruit. And people should just work towards, you know, making themselves more private and more difficult for these transactions to be tracked. And this is also part of the reason that you want every time you you uh spend or receive Bitcoin in your wallet, you want to create a new address because this kind of right. makes it more difficult for people to Right. We talked about or, probability. We talked about probability. Well, if you just keep using the same address, it's just 100%. There, right. There's no, there's, there's not even a probability game, right? Like if you give me an address and I see that that address has received 10 Bitcoin over the last 10 years and 100 different transactions, I can assume you received 10 Bitcoin over the last 10 years and 100 transactions. There's no, right. there's, there's zero privacy there. And that's why on Ethereum, their situation is actually a lot worse than ours because they default to a single address. Right. Like in most Ethereum wallets, it's fixed. And all their shit coins, all their tokens that they use on Ethereum, it's all listed under the same address if you go onto a Explorer. One thing we have going for us is in Bitcoin land, most good wallets, all good wallets, but most wallets will give you a new address every time. And the important thing to realize is if you use an old address, it'll still sh- the balance will still show up in your wallet. Like if you give a friend an address and he repeats and uses it because you didn't tell him a new one, you're still fine. You'll still get your money. But ideally, you never want to reuse addresses. Yeah, th- that's, that's a good point. That's the lowest hanging fruit. Don't reuse addresses. Yeah. Got it. Um, I was just thinking this. I think I've thought this listening to you and Marty before. And I, I don't know if you're going to smell when I'm stepping in here or not. But so obviously... For someone like yourself and to a large extent us, like privacy is a primary motivation for for being on this network and protocol. Like right. that's the that's part of the liberation. That's part of this movement. Now, what could countervail that interest is as institutions buy in, right? As big money is gravitating towards this network because of its store value properties, and you get hedge funds and insurance companies and all this shit, you start to get some slight cuck mentality, as you and Marty have said, of like, we need regulatory clarity and this is a good thing. Have you had any thoughts or ideas about as these big players come in that that still do need, you know, government oversight and whatever, that they kind of compete with this vision for liberation and freedom on the network? Look, Bitcoin is designed for enemies. It's it's a money system that can be used between two enemies without them trusting each other. Um, and that's really the novel aspect of Bitcoin uh, because there's plenty of monetary systems that exist currently and in the past that you can use if you, if you trust someone, whether you trust the person you're dealing with or you trust the authority that's in charge of the system. Um, so the key value prop of Bitcoin is that it's, it's very difficult to change. Um, if you have more Bitcoin, it doesn't make it any easier for you to change it. So y- you remove that possibility um, that en- and that anyone can ask- access it without a trusted third party. So you don't need a Coinbase or you don't need a PayPal to access it. Um, now, many people will still use a trusted third party. Many people will choose to keep it in a regulated custodian and report every single transaction and holding they've ever had. Um, I. I think 
that is inevitable regardless. Um, I think there's going to be stakeholders of the Bitcoin network that have different objectives, different priorities than I do, uh, than a lot of my audience does. Um, and that's okay. Um, I think it's important that we don't put them up on this pedestal yeah. and, and, and try and elevate them to positions of power. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's really that much of a concern because there's very few positions of power in Bitcoin land that are substantial positions of power. Um, and I think it's, it's important for us to remain pragmatic and not um, just naively assume that they're going to work in our interests, that institutional players will work in our interests. And that's fine, but it's a little bit, it's dangerous for the individual if, you, if you're assuming that like, Oh, I don't have to do anything because like Michael Saylor will just make sure that like yeah. we have this great censorship resistant money because he, he's not going to do that. And I don't expect him to do that. And that's okay. And that's, that's not where his incentives are. Yeah. We, we were, right. we've, we said a few months ago, like we, we obviously were very interested in Michael Saylor. We think he has a ton of good things to say. And obviously he's pushed price forward, but especially seeing what happened with the whole Elon thing, like there still is an aspect of Saylor. Not because not to own any of his fault, just he he scares the shit out of us a little bit. The way some of these people right. pine over him. I mean, if 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 you're if if you're a modern day billionaire, which he is, or if you're a CEO of a regulated public company, which he is, um, you have a major target on your back. You need to comply with everything, uh, and and you need to over comply. Um, and as a result, like you said, you just got to follow the incentives and those people, um, you know, they're making their own, their own decisions based on their existing situation. And so I, I will never, uh, you know, like, I don't expect every, let me put it, I don't expect everyone to fight for freedom. Right. But I, I, some of us have to, and ultimately, uh, it's a weird combination of like every man for himself, but we need, we need like a large amount of people to also care about it. Otherwise it, it's just like 10 of us trying to transact privately. And if there's 10 people transacting right. privately, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic, private. but if there's only yeah. 10 people, then you know, it's those 10 people. So Matt, I want to just circle back with one more question about the coin join situation. Yes. Cause I, I have dabbled in it. And one huge concern of mine is I, I want to understand how to make the outputs secure afterwards. So right. let's say uh, I'm in a, in a say whirlpool and you can right. do a tenth of a Bitcoin and you, you run this thing through, right. you send it to a hardware wallet. Now, if I want to go, say I want to coin join an entire Bitcoin, I don't want to segregate, I want that segregated afterwards. Is that correct? Or is it okay to co-mingle that after it's been right. coin joined? So we have, there's three different coin join implementations. You have join market, which is a censorship resistant protocol that doesn't have a company behind it. Um, we have Samurai Whirlpool, which is run by Samurai. And then we have Wasabi Wallet, which is run by ZK Snacks, the Wasabi parent company. Um, Wasabi is currently working on a 2.0. I personally don't recommend anyone use it right now. I use 1.0. I think it's, um, I think you're, you're, you're paying a lot for fees and you're just not getting the privacy benefits that they claim you're getting. Um, so, so I personally don't recommend that anymore. I used to recommend it. This goes back to the guides thing. Don't recommend it anymore. Um, so that leaves Samurai Whirlpool and, um, and Join Market. Join Market is a little bit more difficult to use. The easiest way to use it is with the Raspberry Blitz because it has this built-in tool called Join Inbox. 
um, run by my friend OpenOMS or maintained by my friend OpenOMS. So that is the easiest way to get started with Join Market. Looks like some people might be working on a mobile app for it. Um, so I'm paying attention to that. Um, but right now, to me, the easiest, most user-friendly for someone to get started is with Samurai Wallet. So you get Samurai Wallet on your phone. You link it up with your own node. You can use it with their node, but if you use it with their node, like we said before, you're trusting them with your privacy, which kind of defeats the purpose as far as I'm concerned. There are use cases where maybe you want privacy from the person you paid paid you, but you don't want privacy from Samurai. So I get it, but I think people should use their own node. Fortunately, you could use it with Umbral. You can use it with Ronin Dojo very easily. You scan a QR code, boom. Um, Samurai Whirlpool gives you multiple denominations you can choose from. You can choose a half Bitcoin denomination. You can choose uh, a million, five million sats, so 0.05 Bitcoin, a million sats, 0.01 Bitcoin, or 100,000 sats, 0.001 Bitcoin. And that last pool is very nice because that last pool is about $50 right now. Yeah. Right? So it's $50 inputs and $50 outputs. And that means that someone who is just getting started and has maybe $300 in Bitcoin or something can dabble in CoinJoin and get comfortable with it and actually use it, right? Uh, one of my issues with Wasabi is I, the, the only denomination they have right now is, is 0.1 Bitcoin, uh, which is $5,000. So yeah. like, okay, like, are you going to do a test transaction with $5,000? Like, it's not going to happen. Um, so you have these different denominations, right? Now, the ideal privacy-preserving way after you go through CoinJoin, with Whirlpool, the way their incentive structure is set up, Samurai Whirlpool, is once you pay and you're in the pool, you're getting unlimited remixes for free. Now, the problem is those remixes depend on how many people are using Whirlpool because you need new people coming in for you to get remixes. So the remixes tend to be staggered and it takes a little time. But in general... Once you go into Whirlpool, you kind of want, want it to sit in there for a little bit. The longer you sit in there, all else equal, the better privacy you're getting. Because it's whether or not you're going into a remix round, partners that we're in with you might go into a remix round. So it adds gotcha. onto the chain. Yep. Um, and then there's, of course, there's gotchas after, <laughs> after, after you go through Whirlpool, which is what you're referring to. And I'm assuming what you're saying is, so there's, two, there's basically two things. Uh, once you go through Samurai Whirlpool, are you going to pay someone directly out of Samurai? And if you pay them directly out of Samurai, what they do is they actually fake a coin join transaction just with your own. Tra- if they can, if the software sees that it's able to, it will fake a coin join transaction and it will look like a two person coin join where you provide two inputs that are the same size and it goes out on, on four outputs that are the same size. So it looks like a coin join on chain. You yeah. also have this option for something called Stonewall 2X, which is the same exact thing except with a buddy. So like if if you and Dan both did Samurai Whirlpool and you wanted to pay me, you guys could connect through the app and you both could do a coin join together to pay me. So when I get paid, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. Like whose input is what? Gotcha. Um, so that's cool. But then the real thing that most people ask, let's be honest, is... They, they don't want to spend their Bitcoin. Maybe they'll spend a little bit, but they really want to just send it to their cold card or wherever their, their multi-sig or their cold storage is. Um, so you have, you have two options. You could either send the, each transaction separately as a, as a full transaction to your, to your cold card or wherever your cold storage is. 
um, to a new address each time, right? You don't want to combine. If you combine, if you send, remember probability game, right? Right, right. So, if, so a if new you, address, but the same wallet, right? Same wallet. If you yeah, send, okay. imagine, imagine a probability game, right? So imagine you send uh, a quarter of a Bitcoin, you send $10,000 into Whirlpool, right? And it breaks up into, into 25 uh, million sat, you know, 0 0.01 Bitcoin UTXOs after Whirlpool, right? So you, you go in with one UTXO worth 25 million sats. And then you come out with 25, 1 million sat UTXOs, right? right. Yep. And UTXO is unspent transaction output for people listening. It right. just, those are the pieces of what const the constituent parts of a Bitcoin, basically. Right. So so when you look at when you look at like the more user-friendly wallets, they might just show you a number and like that's how much Bitcoin's in your wallet. But really your wallet is made up of a bunch of different transactions of different amounts. Think of it like change in your wallet, yeah, right? Right. Like a cash wallet. You have $1 bills, $5 bills, $20 bills, and all together it might equal $135, but there's no $135 bill in the wallet. It's a right. bunch of different bills, right? Same thing with Bitcoin. Now, so you go through CoinJoin and you go 25, let's say you do a, tw a 0.25 Bitcoin transaction and then you end up with 25.01 transactions and then you combine them all into, a, into another uh, single transaction that is worth 25.25, you know, 25 million sets. It'd be really obvious on chain chain that someone what you just did yeah. sent in 0.25 right. Bitcoin, yeah. got 25 outputs, and then and then switched it to 0.25 again, right? right? So you want yes. to avoid that, and uh, that was the hyperbolic example. But really, in general, you you don't want to combine those bills after the fact for calling them bills now. UTXOs yeah. after the fact, um, right. and if you do combine them, you want to you want to do it in. Uh, in like a random kind of smaller amounts, you know, yeah, like you don't if you want have the 25. exact same denomination that you went out with. Exactly. It's right. a probability game. Yeah, that makes total yeah. sense. So uh, I guess the, where I was confused is I wasn't sure because this is all, all this privacy stuff is, I understand, I feel like 50% of it. So right. I wasn't sure if once this money goes out, coin joined, I, do I want to bring it back to the same wallet? Because it to me felt like, oh, shit, I might be blowing my privacy cover immediately by bringing those. UTXOs back after them leaving that wallet or right. if like even a series of different UTXOs that I'm deciding deciding to coin join go back into a single wallet I wasn't sure if maybe I needed a separate hardware wallet for each output from a from a coin no, you join don't. okay okay so if you're using your own node right if you're using your own node there's no way on chain to link one address is coming that 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 different addresses are of the same wallet Gotcha. Um, but inherently by itself. Um, now, if you're not using your own node, let's say you're using like Trezor's node or Trezor's server, Trezor knows the addresses, right? So if, you, if, if you're using Trezor's server or you're using Ledger's server or you're using some other person's server, I don't know, they, they can see that, okay, you sent from one address that was in the wallet and then it went into CoinJoin and then came into a new address in the wallet. But it, as, as long as you're using, then this is why I said the number one first thing before you even ever consider CoinJoin is you should be using your own node. Uh, and so you're using your own node and you're generating fresh addresses every time. You don't need to, you don't need to create a new wallet. Now, where you could run into trouble is if 
your existing wallet has non-coin joined, maybe KYC funds, maybe with stuff Matt sent to you or whatever, and they're then you and you have your post coin join in there. If you're using something like Spectre or Sparrow, you can label them, right? Where you can say like this is coin join or this came from Coinbase or this came from Josh, this came from Dan. But most wallets don't give you labeling options. So there's a there's a possibility for error there where you take a a a, a bill or UTXO that's attached to you and you combine it in a transaction with one that was coin joined and then they get linked. Because yep. I, in a Bitcoin transaction, you have the inputs. Like if I pay, it's like a $10 bill and a $1 bill and I want to pay $10.50. And then, so you have two inputs on the input side. Um, that's where they get linked. Got so it. you need to you need to be careful in that regard. Um, usually what I say is like, okay, so you have your cold storage wallet. Anything that goes in or out of the, co- the cold storage wallet should go through CoinJoin first. So when it when it when you're saving it, it goes through CoinJoin and then goes into the cold uh, into the cold storage. And then when it comes time to eventually spend that, maybe in five years or six, maybe there'll be new technology at the time. But it should it should go back through CoinJoin before it gets spent out into the world. So you're like segregating the whole. You're kind of segregating the whole wallet from non-CoinJoin, but. That's just best practice. Technically, you can use the same wallet as long as you're using new address. I think one of my main takeaways, just kind of diving into this, is the point you made of like to to send out a quarter of a Bitcoin and then bring back and and conglomerate a quarter of a Bitcoin isn't necessarily going to take you anywhere. Like there's that's that that's still very obvious right. what you're doing. So I like that. Like if you're if there's some utility to the transaction, like you're cold storing it or you're moving it out for a purpose, that's the time to siphon it through. Right. Yep. Matt, are you at all concerned about coin joined money becoming kind of a gray market or even being, you know, I, I'm sure that there's a way that some of the, the political maneuvering could, could make it seem like it's, you know, drug money, laundered money, that this should be somehow uh, cast away from civil society and not allowed to be used. Um, and my word, yes, I a hundred percent, I am. I, uh, I, I, I think in America, at least it, it can be argued in courts and that we should be fine that, that ultimately coin join is a Bitcoin send transaction. It's, it's a, it's, it, you're sending Bitcoin in a collaborative way with other people, um, right. to have privacy best practices. Um, in a lot of ways, it's it's similar to message encryption. If I send you a message on Signal, the government malicious actors knows I sent an encrypted message. They just don't know what's in the message, right? And that's Correct. protected free speech. Um, so ultimately, I hope that in America, it's protected. Um, but what's important to realize is that it's very obvious on chain. So if 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 you send from Coinbase and Coinbase knows the trend, the the address you sent to, and then Coinbase sees like it goes into a transaction that has five equal inputs and five yeah. equal outputs, it's very obvious you're using CoinJoin. So you're not hiding the fact that you're seeking privacy. You're ideally hiding your future transaction history. Now. Could we end up in a situation where regulated exchanges say we just don't want to deal with the risk and we're not going to accept coin joined funds? 
Um, yes, we already see that. Uh, BlockFi doesn't accept CoinJoin funds. BottlePay doesn't accept CoinJoin funds. It says in their terms of service, you know, we will not accept CoinJoin funds. And BlockFi, they go above and beyond. They say, if if this if this Bitcoin went to an unregulated exchange or a DEX, we're not going to allow it. If it went to a gambling site, we're not going to allow it. If it went to, you know, they have like a list. It's st- straight. Dr- it's draconian, man. It's scary. And how could they? How could you know you received CoinJoin? Bitcoin? Well, Josh, that's you know the I mean? thing, right? They they don't tell you because they say they're not allowed to tell you because then they tip you off and you'll just go a little bit past where they tell you, right? But yeah. but that's exactly my point. Uh, it's 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 ridiculous concept to expect us to like if you send me Bitcoin, yeah. then I'm supposed to check what you did, um, and. Yeah, you better go back to the Coinbase on this one and Dan sniff right. it all the way back. So in the short term, in the short term, if you're a short term trader and all you intend to do is buy Bitcoin, hope for the next all time high and sell it back on a regulated exchange, don't use CoinJoin. Right? Like you're just gonna you could cause issues for yourself. You might not be able to sell it again. Yeah. I have no intention of selling my Bitcoin on a regulated exchange. I have no intention of selling my Bitcoin in five or ten years. You know, this is a long term proposition for me. Matt's waiting for the collapse of the empire before he sells his Bitcoin. Yeah. If I go to if I go to a convenience store, if I go to a convenience store and they're looking 10 hops back to to see if I used CoinJoin, maybe I even pay them with lightning. I pay them with lightning and they're gonna what they're gonna chain analysis me and try and figure out if I funded <laughs> my lightning channel with CoinJoin when I'm buying a sandwich. That's ridiculous. That's something else I never even thought of. Like, so how does that work? So Lightning wouldn't stop you with CoinJoin Bitcoin from opening a Lightning channel, correct? Like, there's right. no... So correct. you could just effectively use it on Lightning, I guess, but... Correct. It's why these... right the, the wonderful thing is these regulations are unworkable. You know, I mean, you look at this fucking infrastructure bill, like you got a bunch of boomers trying to figure out right. an alien technology that they haven't spent any time with. When you start understanding this protocol and how it might get stacked, and even for me, like digesting Taproot, Long term, like they can say that this lip service can happen in the confines of the, the of Congress, but long term, this network is it's not right. possible to carry out these solutions. So it's almost like in my head, I'm like, just wait it out, man. Cold store this shit. Right. right. Best practices, wait this shit out because the regulations are going to change right. a lot as they try to get their hands on this slippery hog. To to <laughs> me, to me, the concern is more short term concern. Um. Yeah. Uh, not only so if so if you want to sell on a regulated exchange, you know you might not want to coin join, or you might want to keep a stash that's not coin joined because you intend to sell. I mean, I think I think you're going to regret selling more than you're going to regret coin joining, but that's just me. Another thing that people talk about is, you know, if you're going to buy like a two million dollar house with Bitcoin, you know, if if those are coin joined, maybe you have some difficulty buying it, right? In the short term, yeah, maybe I I. I I, I don't disagree that, you know, especially some lenders might not allow it. Some sellers might not allow it. Completely understand. Um, but long term, you know, I think if, if, you know, if you're buying a house in 10 years and you're, you're paying in Bitcoin and they like they're going to we have way bigger issues if they're going to check all your history. Like people, you know, CoinJoin is the common one that people talk about. But there was like a six month period, seven month period where any coins with BitMEX history uh, were being flagged, right? And those were a shit ton of coins. Like BitMEX had a had a, had a lot of people use BitMEX. 
Um, so if, if we have this like onerous burden, some idea that you're going to check every coin's history, um, at point of sale, um, then Bitcoin has major, major problems that are bigger than my individual ability to dump my coins. Great point. So that's a, that's a personal risk that I guess I'm taking a personal analysis I'm taking. Alternatively, the opposite side of that risk is so some people say, okay, Matt, I agree with you there. In that case, I'm not going to coin join now. I'm just going to hold it in cold storage and I'll, I'll coin join in the future if, I, if I'm going to spend it and when I want to make a decision. Now, the risk there is, first of all, I don't believe that nobody is spending Bitcoin. I think people spend a small amount to Bitcoin, but the overwhelming amount they're saving. But you're going to make some payments in Bitcoin. So if you, and especially if you open a Lightning channel, as far as I'm concerned, every Lightning channel should be CoinJoin first. Um, mm. But, and the reason for that is because if the node is connected to you, if someone figures out what your Lightning node is yours, they can, they can, and they're advanced attacker, they can see what transactions funded it. So if you don't use CoinJoin, they might be able to figure out your, your total balance and your other transactions if you don't use CoinJoin before you fund a Lightning channel. Hmm. Um, but anyway, I digress a little bit. My argument for them is look at the T-Mobile hack, right? If Coinbase gets hacked, do you want a bunch of malicious actors, bunch of Russian mob type people, um, Ukrainians, all these different, all these different groups of people, Chinese? Do you want them to know exactly how much Bitcoin you own, your home address, your name? Do you want them to know every single transaction you've made, every single transaction you receive? No, you don't want them to know that. So I think, and I, I think this is a, a major argument for why any government or organization or company that tries to restrict coin join usage of customers and Bitcoiners um, is directly going against those users' best interests and they're putting them at risk. You're, you're, you're putting those users at risk because you're exposing them to this potential financial data leak in the future. Yeah. And from what we've learned with the digitization of, of, of all sorts of personal data is that once these databases get created, they never get disbanded. They keep growing, and eventually they leak. They yeah. almost always leak. It's pretty much guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. There's the Target Home Depot one a few years ago. This T-Mobile one now. It's it's endless. What was the 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 Equifax one where it was like every single U.S. adult? Oh yeah, I was involved in that one. Fucking hey, dude. It's like a third of the United. It's like a third of the United States. Yeah, they offered yeah. you a pittance too. They were like, "Oh, here, here's two hundred bucks, or like some bullshit yeah. life lock crap for like." Yeah, two here's years. your two years of ID yeah. protection. Don't worry, it'll protect you. <laughs> Don't worry, the hackers that hacked us couldn't figure out around life lock. I'm sure. Ugh. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a clown show. We like to ask this uh, of everybody that comes on. What do you see as a vulnerability of Bitcoin? Like, if you're playing devil's advocate. Flipping over to the other side, what if anything concerns you? You're Steve um, Hankey. I first of all, I mean, I think this one's more theoretical, uh, but with the the recent Chinese migration or the Chinese banning mining, um, I don't want to see too much hash come into the United States. I, I, I'm, I'm, we could use more hash. We're still probably. I don't know, off the top of my head, like probably like 15% of the hash of the network in the United States. Um, but I don't want that to get anywhere above, you know, 35 or 40. I would prefer if it if it stays down. 
I want I want the hash all around the world. I want it run by hobbyist miners and home miners. I want every Bitcoiner to have two ASICs in their basement. You know, um, I want that as distributed as possible. It does look like it is getting very distributed. You know, my co-host on Rabbit Hole Recap, Marty Bent, is focused on those mobile mining rigs that they put at the stranded gas well sites. Yep. There's a bunch of other companies doing that. I want to see more of that rather than big ass warehouse yeah. server farms. You know, controlled by a public company that can just you know have to bend the knee at will. Um, mm. So that's a bit of an existential risk, um, but not too bad. Um, I think the biggest risk is not to Bitcoin. Um, the biggest risk is to individual Bitcoiners, depending on which country they live in, mm. and that we're just very we're everyone's very exposed. Um, we're very exposed in terms of. KYC on ramps, like most people come in, like 99% of the people that come in, they come in through this regulated on ramp, right? And they're giving all their personal information to this to this company. Uh, that company might be sharing it with their governments. Like we said, it probably will leak eventually. They might even sell the data. Um, and all that data is is being collected, and then people aren't being prudent on chain. So if you if you decide if if and like we tend to have a very American focus, uh, we're all Americans. Um, but like if you live in Italy, you know, and the Italian government decides that they're going to do an extremely unjust and burdensome tax regime on Bitcoin, um, and they decide we're going to do sixty percent transaction tax on Bitcoin, or we're going to put a like an ungodly capital gains tax on Bitcoin. Maybe we'll do an unrealized capital gains tax, like wealth tax style, yeah. uh, where we'll we'll just take twenty percent of your Bitcoin. Yeah, we we're this makes us pucker for sure. We talk about this a lot. Yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are here. Any anyone who is not taking privacy best practices into concern at that point is going to be very, very exposed. They're going to know all your transactions. They're going to know exactly how much balance you have. Um, and this goes, like I said, this goes beyond CoinJoin. Like if you're, if you're using a ledger in default mode and you're using ledger servers or you're using Blue Wallet in default mode and you're using Blue Wallet servers, like they just have to pressure that one company and they can, they can get real-time transaction balances. Um, so I... I I, that's why I think it's prudent. And th like I said, I don't think the thing is that will happen in different countries. Some people will be made examples of people will move, companies will move. I think the Bitcoin protocol is fine in that situation. Yeah. Um, but I think there could be a lot of pain for individual Bitcoiners. And that's basically why my focus, you know, one of the reasons why my focus has been so much on privacy. You don't want plebs to get pinched. Yeah. Where's the Bitcoin Citadel going to be? I mean, we're, we're finally talking to some people who are on the inside, like yourself. Like, you got to let us know. We need to get into the Citadel. Where are we buying property here, Matt? We're going to have Citadels. Uh, I mean, that's another existential threat. Like, I don't think we should put all the Citadels, like, in the outskirts of Austin, <laughs> you know, like, where everyone's like, we're going to all move to the same fucking spot. Yeah. Um, the whole, the beauty, the beauty of Citadel theory to me is this idea of localism, um, but it's localism with international trade. Right, so all of a sudden, because we have Bitcoin, um, we can we can send money borderless. Right, um, new technologies are allowing us to ship things, you know, easier around the world at the same time. 
Oh, you know, maybe we'll even have like trustless uh, or trust minimized like drone shipping and stuff like that, which would get pretty fucking crazy quickly and 3D printing. And and so I think we can have like these like little localism pockets around the world um, with local governance that respects property rights, that respects sovereignty, um, and then have them all interconnected so that we don't necessarily depend on each other, but we can benefit from each other. Um, and I think all the lockdowns and the draconian responses to uh, to COVID in a lot of the world have, has kind of tipped people's hands on which areas might be safer to yeah. be at. Yeah. Um, I you know I I think people underestimate the resilience of of the American system. I, I I'm very grateful. Um, you know, I'm very skeptical of the U.S. government a lot of the time, and I'm I'm very critical of them, uh, specifically, you know, the national government. Uh, but the way the states have been competing for for people and capital and against certain laws and certain uh, rulemaking decisions uh, is very optimistic. So I, I I think if you're an American citizen, you should be basically looking at the different states. Yeah. And deciding which laws have kind of worked out the way you agree with. Specifically, a lot of the COVID stuff is a very good, easy flag, but all the other laws as well and their history there and, and the demographics of the different places. And you should make your decision based on that. And personally, I'm looking for land. I want land. Um, but then if you're, if you're out of America, if you're out of America, it's a different question. If you're out of America, it's very hard to get American citizenship. You have a, a lot of other different options and you should weigh those same exact considerations that I said. As an American, though, I think a lot of Bitcoiners think they can just naively renounce their American citizenship. Like you have to pay full cap. You're supposed to pay full capital gains tax on everything you own as if you sold it yeah. when you renounce your American citizenship. And then you end up on their shit list for the rest of your life and all their grandkids and everyone else ends up on the shit list. So for Americans, I don't really think renouncing your citizenship is a really realistic option. Um, and if you're not going to renounce it, you're supposed to pay their taxes anyway. So it's like, what, yeah. what do you well, do? Well, for a milk cow to get off the reservation, it's got to get milked real hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, sovereign individual theory like will play out eventually. But I, right. I think people get a little frisky with their uh, the way they characterize jurisdictional arbitrage right now. Like, yeah, there's opportunities for some really well-off privileged people. Yeah. But for the average person, and to be candid with our situation, the average firefighter paramedic with a couple kids right. and you're married to a locality. We're like moving. we're not, we're not fucking going down to El Salvador right now. Yeah. We have to be realistic. <laughs> we might visit. Yeah. I think the jurisdictional arbitrage is more like a big picture resistance thing. Like companies are going to move around. People on a long-term time scale are going to move around. Um, that, and that, that is also just one of the arguments against localism, like a, a pragmatic argument against localism to me is, it only really works if people have free movement and there's like, I, I just can't circle the square that there's, there's lower class people. It's just, they're never going to have the means to leave and move to different places yeah. in general. Um, so I, it's just like kind of, to me, I just look at it as like kind of an unfortunate reality and just hope that um, people have more opportunity and more access in general. But I don't know how to, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes down to Citadel theory is like, I think we're going to enter 
like a chaotic period over the next like 20 years at some point. I don't know exactly when 2020 kind of caught me off guard. It happened. The, everything that was going on in 2020 happened sooner than I expected. Yeah. Um, but in general, my expectations usually take longer than I expect. Um, but I expect a period of chaos. And at that point of chaos, my, I, what I want is I want me and my family to have, you know, access to fresh water, access to land, be able to defend ourselves um, and, you know, have our savings in Bitcoin so we're protected monetarily. Um, and all those things combined should give us the best opportunity to, you know, to have long-term happiness. And, and that's basically like how I look at it. Well said. Yeah, we want to be respectful of your time. Yeah, we need to release this bass back into the water. <laughs> no, I appreciate you guys. This has been, uh, I really enjoyed this. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I'm glad I said yes. Yeah, we hope to have you on again. At the end of the day, we're doing this podcast to, for, I mean, you'd say selfishly just for us to learn and then hopefully someone can benefit along the way. So yeah, we've been in the space for a while and we know our way around to some extent, but being able to pick your brain on stuff like coin joins and wallets and all that, that's incredibly helpful for us. No, this is, guys, this is what it's about. You know, that's why I, I started my shows. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the only way this thing scales is if, if we keep reaching Bitcoiners and then those Bitcoiners go out and help their friends and family, right? And, and, and in that way, it becomes almost like an exponential movement. Otherwise, like there's only so many people I individually can reach or you individually can reach. So as far as I'm concerned, we're all on the same team. There's no competition here. I'm always happy to come back on. Uh, like it was, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. We did too. Thanks, Freak. We appreciate it. <laughs> Take Cheers, care. Cheers. We'll hold down the fort. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind, and our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. 